Thank you, Father, for the chance to study and to teach such a wonderful little book. Sometimes, Father, the best things come in small packages, as our parents used to tell us. And, Father, thank you so much for this wonderful gift of wisdom from a man who, in the day Christ walked, did not have the power of God to see him as Christ. But your gracious heart, your mercy, Father, was evident in his life and that he came to know that his brother was actually the Lord. And then you gave him the opportunity to be a teacher in the church, Father. And and that is a lesson by itself, that no one is out of reach, no one is beyond your mercy. And in the day you appoint, you can call them to faith. And I thank you, Father, that this man could turn and come so far from where he was and yet instruct us now by the Spirit. May that be a reminder, Father, that though I may speak these words or someone else may teach us at times in the past or in the future, you are the teacher. And it's your words we, we care to hear, Father. And and we can hear them through the mouths of people or even the mouths of donkeys as you appoint. And, and that means, Father, that we should never discount the messenger, but concern ourselves with the message. And we thank you, Father, for that message. In Jesus' name, amen. So how about a short review or reminder of what we did last week? We looked in the first three verses about Jude's purpose and a little bit about himself and about God. And he ended by saying he felt the need to write the church asking them to fight for the faith. And that's where we ended last week, fighting for the faith. And that fight was to protect the content of the gospel, the essence of the teaching that Jesus handed down to the apostles to the church. And that fight was against any who would come along wishing to do harm to the orthodox teaching of the church. And it was, in fact, a fight. As we said last week, it will be a true form of hostility, though without arms, perhaps, and hopefully never coming to blows. But it is a fight nonetheless. And it was with false teachers, the same false teachers that Peter warned the church would one day show up. And now that Jude is delivering the news, it is the time that they have arrived. Jude now telling the church they're here. So he asked the church, fight against these men who have come into your church teaching falsely. In any battle, the success often depends on your knowledge of the enemy, of who they are and how they work and where their weaknesses are and how you contend with them. And... That's easiest to do when you know who your enemy is, when they look different than you, when they're culturally different, when it's an us against them and it's clear who the two parties are. When that's true, defining and understanding your enemy becomes a lot easier and then victory becomes a lot easier. That's why villains always wear black hats and good guys always wear white hats in the movies. It's so that we can pick them out. It keeps things so much easier. Well, what happens when the enemies are inside the gates? What happens when they live among us? What happens when they work among us? What happens when they look like us? What happens when they pretend to be us on the same team? It's dangerous. It's dangerous because we can't tell the difference between our neighbors and our enemies. It's why spies are universally hated. G.K. Chesterton once said, The Bible tells us to love our enemies and also to love our neighbors, probably because generally they're the same people. Jude writes to this church, to churches in the diaspora, to name names, essentially, to expose who these false teachers are, to put a face on the enemy of the faith, in particular because they're living amongst the church. They're already there. The church's enemies have infiltrated the camp, just as Peter said would happen one day. They're working from the inside to weaken the church. They speak from a position of strength, from a position of authority in some cases, And as a result, they're causing the faithful in the church to stumble because 
the faithful are following these men who appear to have some standing, some maturity, some authority. And in Jude's day, they weren't being challenged by the New Testament teaching that we take for granted because it hadn't yet been written, by and large. So without the canon there to defend the orthodoxy, it comes down to who you trust, who you listen to, who you follow. And as the apostles were working to distribute the teaching Jesus gave to them, other men, false teachers, were working to counter that with their own thoughts, their own views, posing as friends and in the process encouraging the church to great sin. Charlotte Bronte once said, I can be on guard against my enemies, but God, deliver me from my friends. And that's the nature of this problem. You're not on guard against someone who you have presumed to be of like mind. So Jude is writing to stimulate or stir or appeal that the church would contend earnestly for the faith, contend meaning to fight, to defend the orthodoxy of the faith against those who have come in to change it. That takes us directly back into the letter, into verse 4. And now he begins to lay out the nature of the problem to define the enemy so that they might know where to direct their fight. Verse 4, Jude says, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our Lord into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. From last week, you may remember that this book is neatly organized according to threes, as Jude prefers to speak in threes. Each of these threes, wherever we encounter them, becomes another topic or another outline bullet point for us. So here's the third one for us. Jude describing the manner and the nature of the enemies of faith. Beginning with certain persons having crept in unnoticed. Certain persons. That's literally in Greek, that's specific men. And so Jude has specific men in mind. As he speaks or writes to this church, he writes this letter knowing who he's talking about, and presumably they know who he's talking about also. Now, they may not know these people in the way he knows them, which is the point of the letter, but he didn't have to name them in order to be clear about who they were. He was already sure these men were known. The enemies of the gospel do this routinely. They come in a lot of ways, a lot of forms, a lot of attacks, because Satan has many weapons at his disposal, and he likes to use all of them. We are not wise enough in and of ourselves, by ourselves, to spot them all, apart from what God may give us through the Scripture or through the Spirit. Even though there are many, many forms of the enemy's tactics and techniques, Jude seems to have some specific things in mind, not only people, but tactics or specific ways in which the enemy is working here, and he's intent on describing them. So though Jude's letter is one of those hallmark parts of the New Testament on the topic of false teachers, Second Peter is another one, it is not to say that everything you could learn about false teachers is found in Jude or even in Second Peter, for that matter. We're simply saying that these are a certain style that have come in in this church and have always been around in the church. So we can learn something about one aspect of the problem. So certain men. Secondly, he says they have crept in unnoticed. That phrase crept in unnoticed is a single word in Greek. It's a really interesting word. It's the only time in the entire New Testament that this word appears in the Bible. It's a compound word. It's actually made of three Greek words smashed together. Para, which means beside. Ice, which means among. And duno, which means to settle in. Think of, um, think of something settling calmly under still water until it's submerged. So it means to settle in alongside quietly. You might also think of a scenario where someone's walking on a, on a road and 
Another person just happens to join them on the walk, but just comes in from behind slowly until they're standing next to you, and you know, almost never noticed it until they were there. And even then, it was so subtle, they just didn't draw your attention. So these men have settled in alongside, quietly, without drawing attention, in the church. One of the tactics we ought to take note of is the enemy does not come with the black hat and the handlebar mustache, riding into town, telegraphing his arrival so that we would all be on guard. That serves no purpose from his point of view, clearly. As Paul said, an angel of light, an enemy who portrays himself as a friend. So don't think you'll spot the enemy because they always stand out as they do in the movies. That's not the enemy's tactic. He's far wiser than that. In Jude's day, itinerant preaching was very common. Jesus was actually called an itinerant teacher or preacher himself. Itinerant preachers are men who move about the countryside, preaching from town to town, never really settling in any one place, not having a base of operations. As you might think of today with a pastor in a church, we're talking about men whose living is made by this movement, and they earn their living from the love offerings or the gifts they were receiving as they moved from place to place teaching. That was a very common style in this day, and it remained that way actually until about the 20th century. It wasn't until recent years that you saw men settling somewhere as a routine. You know, some of the most famous preachers of the American frontier, Whitefield and others, made their living moving around, particularly Whitefield up and down the eastern seaboard. That happened a lot in this place. Because that was an acceptable pattern, it meant that it was far easier for a stranger, someone you didn't know particularly well, someone whose background was a bit fuzzy, to ride into town, so to speak, set up shop for a while and be accepted, where today you'd be a lot less likely to accept that kind of teaching, or at least you should be. But in that day, it was far more common. The culture accepted strangers, and they gave them virtually equal authority with any established teachers in the congregation. You were tested not by who you were or where you came from, but by what you said. And so there was always an opportunity to gain a hearing. The question then became, what did you teach? As a result, perhaps these false teachers in Jude's day had come into the diaspora under that manner of itinerant preaching, set up shops, stayed for a while, perhaps moved on, perhaps stuck around. But in whatever way they showed up, they have now become a negative influence in the church, as Peter said they would one day. And they've entered, it says, without the church noticing. Now, that's a problem all by itself. It's one thing to have a stranger show up amongst us, and we didn't pay much attention as they walked in the door. But if they start to teach, how do they go unnoticed? As we learn later in this chapter, these men hold very wrong doctrines, very bad teaching, and they encourage very bad practices in the church. And yet, somehow, they came in, it says, alongside, quietly, unnoticed, and achieved that position of authority or of influence. It was as if Peter's warnings had been completely ignored because, remember, Jude's letter is written largely as a result of what Peter wrote in Second Peter coming true. So they'd heard it before in advance. Now he's saying what you heard is happening. Contrast that to what we know about the church in Ephesus, for example. Now, the church in Ephesus was a church that existed in generally the same time and in the same area as the other churches of the diaspora who were the audience for this letter. Jesus wrote a letter to that church, as you may know, through John in the book of Revelation. And at one point he says this about the church in Ephesus. He says, I know your deeds, Revelation 2.2. I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And, he says, you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false. So according to Jesus, false teachers couldn't sneak up on the Ephesians. And apparently they tried, and they were found out to be false. 
what happened there that caused one church not to tolerate evil men while apparently others are doing so and don't even know it? What was the difference between those two circumstances? Well, we have one clue in Jesus's letter. He says they tested the men who made claims of apostleship. They tested them. Once again, they did not have, by and large, the New Testament canon. So how were they testing these men? I would think it would probably mean that they demanded that the men demonstrate their apostolic powers. And remember, we talked last week about the way God gifted those men in unique ways so that they could pass such a test. And so if these men were tested and could not qualify, then their teaching was dismissed. Secondly, we can imagine that the church in Ephesus did something along the lines of what the Bereans did to Paul as he walked through Berea and taught. They went home every night and they searched the scriptures to see if what they had heard from Paul was true. What scriptures? Well, that would have to be the Old Testament, the only scripture that was canonized essentially at that point, the Jewish scriptures. Which is to say that even though these churches were absent the New Testament, they weren't absent scripture. And all scripture must comport. All scripture is written by the same Lord, through the same spirit, to the same message. If what I teach you today doesn't comport with what was spoken through the prophets in long ago days, then I'm wrong by definition. And often I am. We all are at some point. That's why we have the Bible, so that our faith doesn't rest on the power of men, but on the power of God. Right. So somehow the other churches in the diaspora had failed to take those basic precautions, testing the men by the standard God had provided through the gifts of the apostles. Then secondly, to establish through scripture that what they were hearing was true. This is a problem in the way that church behaved and the way the leadership encouraged their their own discipleship. And it's a problem today. How often do you think someone could come in and teach something wrongly and be corrected by the congregation? By some, yes. But by the congregation as a whole, I mean, we wouldn't have the problems we have in churches generally if that were true. Right. We wouldn't have the kind of men who teach today so widely and with such wide audiences if that were true. Testing any leader, any teacher is defense 101 in the church against the enemies of the faith. Testing them, not taking for granted what they say. If you're not testing what I'm saying, you're ripe for a fall, whether from me or someone else. That's a a dangerous standard. If your standard is if Steve said it, it must be okay, Or if someone else said it, it must be okay. We have to eventually have a a knowledge of Scripture that's independent of a given teacher's delivery. And that becomes our source for establishing whether any teacher is correct. It's like closing the gates in the city wall. It's the first line of defense you have. These churches in the diaspora have failed at the first line of defense, that is to test those who've come into the church. And we still have that requirement today. And you're going to see that the men Jude is concerned about do still exist today. Because as we study them further in the letter, you're going to recognize not only who they are, but their modus operandi. You're going to recognize what they do because you've seen it. You are seeing it, not necessarily uh, in your church or your pastor necessarily, but you've seen it in the church corporate because it's out there today. Men who have wormed their way into the church, into communities, just as the ones had done in Jude's day. You cannot pick them out by their appearances. These men love their wives, they kiss their kids, they hug everybody, they smile a lot. They speak in soothing tones, they pray with their eyes closed really tightly, they use the name of Jesus a lot, they are tares among the wheat. You cannot pick them out by how they look or even how they sound, but in the end, their teaching gives them away as enemies of the faith, but only to those who are informed by the word of God to know the difference. And if the enemy is sophisticated enough, wise enough, crafty enough, to use the biblical term, 
that he knows not to come looking like the enemy, then we can also be sure that he's crafty enough with his words to make sure that the difference between truth and error will be just enough. Not enough to cause you to notice it. He won't come in and say, Jesus isn't Lord. He'll come in and say, Jesus is Lord, but, or and, or if, or he just won't mention Jesus at all. We can only find them by listening carefully, studying your Bible, then testing what they say. All right, so in the first part of what Judas started in verse 4, is he said, here's the way in which you got where you are. Now, in the next part of this verse, you get to the triad. And in this triad, Jude rebukes the church. This is a rebuke against them for having let themselves get into this point where these men are teaching. In the first part of the triad, Jude says, these false teachers were marked out for condemnation. Now, condemnation is a Greek word, krima. It literally means judgment. We're talking here about the judgment of God, the second death, the great white throne judgment, the point at which they will be judged eternally. This is not some lesser form. He's saying these men were marked out for God's judgment. As enemies of the faith, it should not surprise us that these men are going to face judgment for their sin. That shouldn't be anything surprising. But what is interesting is he says they were marked out for this fate beforehand. Now, the literal Greek phrase is this. Listen, long ago, written out in advance. That's what it literally says in Greek. Long ago, written out in advance. In other words, these men and their fate were long ago prophesied or written or told that there would be this circumstance in which men coming in teaching falsely would deceive many and that they've known this. Now, where was this written? How far back do we have to go? Well, maybe he means something from the Old Testament that's not immediately clear to us. Maybe he's speaking about the lessons of false teachers that are found throughout the Old Testament from from Balaam and onward, right? Maybe, and perhaps so, but you don't have to go that far. You only have to go as far as Peter, for one, because Peter and the other apostles in their day, prior to the writing of Jude, had told the church that these men would come. In fact, Jesus himself foretold that this stuff would happen. In Matthew 7:13, Jesus said this, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. His warning ends with you will know them. If you're looking, if you're paying attention, if you notice what I've told you to notice, you'll see this. And Peter, in his second letter, echoes this extensively, particularly in his second chapter, who these men are, how they work, where they come from, what to look for, how to deal with them. So this church, all of these churches, have heard this. Those letters were circulated. Jesus' words have already been circulated. Matthew's gospel had been written by this time. These things were known. And yet, here they are, crept in, unnoticed, doing damage. So Jude, in this statement, in the first piece of the triad, he's rebuking them over their lack of diligence against these men and against what has been already given. The apostles taught them, Jesus taught them, and yet they allowed these men to come in anyway. And I would think that's no wonder then that Jude starts his letter by saying, you know, I had another topic for you, but I feel compelled to have to bring this back to your mind. Because you didn't listen the first time. They should have seen it coming. Now, in the second part of that verse, second part of the triad, 
Jude then describes the manner of these false teachers. So the second one is the manner. He says they are ungodly men who change God's grace into licentiousness. Ungodliness is the Bible's term for what we in the modern world say unbeliever. You say unbeliever. The Bible says godless. And so it comes as no surprise that he says these enemies of the faith are unbelievers. You can see that word godless used very clearly to show unbeliever in places like the book of Hebrews, for example, where Esau is considered to be a godless man. We'll see Jude later emphasize the fact that these men are not believers in the third part of the triad. And then he says their manner of operating is to turn or change God's grace into a license to sin. That's what licentiousness means. Having a license or thinking you have a license to sin. A feeling that you have some right or some freedom to do what is otherwise wrong. Now, before you truly understand what grace is as the Bible teaches it, before you've really come to understand grace as the Bible explains it, a new believer, an immature one, can be persuaded into thinking that God's limitless grace gives a green light for us to go on sinning. We don't come to that view, I think, without some prodding. But as an immature believer, you could be told and you could be convinced that it was appropriate to sin under the circumstances because God's grace covered it regardless. And false teachers had taken that error and they had manipulated it for their own advantage. Let me show you what I mean. Paul addresses it in Romans 6. He says in 6.1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin, licentiousness, so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now, what Paul's addressing there is a thinking or a belief that says, now that I have grace, I don't live under any law. I have no responsibility with regard to moral law or any other kind of restrictions. I am free to do whatever I want. I have license even to sin. And Paul was addressing that problem at that point in Romans by saying, Just because God's grace is limitless doesn't mean that you're to continue sinning so as to prompt more grace. That's the bizarre way in which false teachers had tried to use grace and turn it into licentiousness. And so the false teachers were saying, God has grace and it is without limit. Christ's sacrifice on the cross is sufficient to cover all your sin. Because you sin in the flesh, you create a need for God to grant you more grace to cover that new sin. So by allowing our flesh to engage in more and more sin, you're increasing God's grace, and that's a good thing. So you're actually contributing to God's glory through your sin by giving him more opportunity to show his grace. That's what they taught. It hinged on the Gnostic view of the body, which said that because it's not a body God intends to keep, it needs to be done away with. Therefore, in the meantime, it matters not to God at all. It's, it's like how you treat a rental car. I've only got it for a few days. Who really cares how I drive it? So the body being done away with, to them, was evidence of God not caring about it or caring what we did with it. Combine that with this misunderstood thought of how grace could be magnified. You put the two together and you have an argument that says sin as much as you want. The body doesn't matter and God wants to give you more grace anyway. Go for it. They then took those two teachings, brought them to the church, and the church was now incentivized by that or encouraged by that to become more sinful. And that's what Jude says. They turned the grace of God into licentiousness. Now, let's address this notion clearly, just in case. This is heresy. This is false teaching. The math does not work. One sin plus two sin does unequal more grace. It doesn't work that way, right? So as 
Paul said we are not to continue in sin so that grace may increase. He says, may it never be. Every true believer need only search your hearts to know the answer to that question. I don't think the Spirit leads us there naturally. I think He convicts us of our sin continuously. And in any effort we make to learn more of Him through His Word, we'll come to the greater understanding of how God really sees sin and how He expects us to behave. Paul says we are to glorify the Lord in our body since He dwells within it. I think you get there naturally by the Spirit and through the Word. We're talking here about people who are being misled by men whose intentions are not pure, and who have an ability to persuade, and because they're not grounded in the word, they're not able to defend their own sanctity. That goes hand in hand with how they got in this position in the first place, right? If they had been good in the word, these men never would have had an opportunity to come in and teach. You see, we're all coming back to the same thought every time here about what the defense is. Your knowledge of God through his word is the foundation to understanding how to behave and how to know and relate to teachers. So, our body is to die, Paul says, Yes. What is the response to that truth? We abuse it in the near term, like a rental car, as I said. No, Paul actually makes the opposite argument. He says, your body, therefore, can become a sacrifice to God. A sacrifice, a living one, ultimately a dead one, but in the meantime a living one. And just as the Jews never sacrifice an imperfect animal to God, God's expectation is that our life would be used to prepare our bodies as that perfect, spotless bride for Christ. Now, we can't do that in our own power. That was never the call. The call was to yield to the Spirit in the work that he does to sanctify. But the intent is that our body, in its life and at its death, would be a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord. So we're moving it in the direction of holiness for that sake, so that when we do hand it back to God, so to speak, he returns, it returns to its maker, it goes back as a pleasing sacrifice. These men, on the other hand, aren't seeking to glorify God by their bodies. Far from it. They don't know the Lord. So that's not their aim. Their warped theology is simply a cover for their corrupt morals. I mean, who wouldn't love somebody saying, you have a green light to do whatever you want with your body? And when I say who, I mean in the fleshly sense. Who wouldn't find that appealing, if only for a moment? No guilt? No. No consequence? No. The body's going away. God really likes it? Yes. More grace comes of it. You're actually helping him his plan. Yeah, you're, you're, you're furthering his plan of grace. You see, if I don't have anything else to go by, it starts to make sense, at least for a while. And these men had the intent for their own sake to engage in some manner of sin. And interestingly, they wanted to do it within the context of the church rather than do it outside the church where they could have already. Not being content to carry it on outside the church, but desiring that the church endorse it, they now have to change the rules within the church. They have to change the expectations. They have to change the understanding of what is sin. They wanted to bring in sin and not have it called sin. You can see that happening today, can't you? So we live today in a world in which various perversions of one kind or another that are already in the world are finding their way into the church and Christians and supposed Christians are seeking to be a part of a church that allows them to maintain their life of sin without condemnation. The most common are man and woman living together before marriage, fornication, other forms of licentiousness in society, from pornography to R-rated movies of certain kinds. The problem is what we're willing to approve comes down to what we believe is wrong, and that comes down to what we know about Scripture. Do you know what is the most often asked question we get in our ministry? Is watching pornography wrong? Dennis wants to know what the answer is. 
I do have a counseling appointment open. You can... That was just a joke, and I know it, but it was funny. Everyone who wants to practice sin and do so in the context of the church, they have to come in and in some fashion convince some group or the whole of the group that what they're doing isn't as bad as it sounded after all, that it's okay. And that is a function of sin itself, by the way. Sin is naturally corrosive and corrupting by its nature. And you see this from the very first sin that we have recorded in Scripture. After woman eats, what does she do next? What's her first thought? Someone else needs to eat this thing, too. It's not enough that I ate it. I need someone else to share in my sin. That's the natural corrupting effect of sin is you're never content to sin by yourself. Why? Because the conscience convicts, but in groups there's safety. Because company affirms your choice or appears to, and it assuages the guilt that your conscience has. These men have come in with this goal of increasing sin for their own sake, of being able to give themselves an opportunity to do what they want, and they've taken the grace of God and used it as their argument. Turn it into licentiousness. And then the third piece of the triad, finally, Jude says these men deny Jesus Christ as master. That last part is a direct quote out of Second Peter. Now, if you remember, I said last week, there are a ton of quotes from Second Peter in this letter. So let me read you the quote. Second Peter 2, verses 1 and 2. Verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned. That's just everything Jude said, just sort of backwards, written in a different order. And Jude's drawing on it to remind them. You heard this before. Notice Peter mentions all the key elements. Secretly, introducing heresies, denying the master. They're prepared to receive judgment. They're following their own sensuality. That's their motivation. Their desire here is to sin without regard for guilt or for rules. They therefore then malign the faith. And that's the connection to grace. Maligning the faith is the reference to saying to everyone else, this is what faith allows. So it's not enough for them to simply say, yeah, I know the Bible says you're not supposed to do this. I know we're not supposed to do this. We're going to do it anyway. It's not enough. They want to say the Bible says we can do this. And then the faith is changed. Their denial of Jesus wasn't a specific repudiation of Christ or Christianity. When it says they denied the master, it doesn't mean they came in and said, oh, that Jesus guy, he's not God. No, no, no. That would be the equivalent of Satan putting on the black hat. No, as John says in 1 John 2, 4, the one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. So Jude is saying to this church, by their behavior and their teaching, they're denying Christ. They're demonstrating who they are by those things, as 1 John says. And as you see what they do, you know who they really are. So they say this, they do this, and therefore they're denying Christ. So now these are men who have never been believers. They've crept in. They deny the Lord. They're introducing heresies. They have licentious desires. These are not men who have good intentions. And the clearest proof of that I could offer you outside of Jude is the fact that Jude is so obviously quoting Peter. And the second chapter of Peter is a chapter about top to bottom. The whole chapter is false teachers, capital F, capital T, unbelievers, wolves in sheep's clothing, appearing to be what they're not. The sow that returns to the mud, the dog that returns to the vomits, how he ends that chapter. It's about those who haven't changed their stripes, but you're not sure who they are at first. But when you look at the fruit, bad trees don't produce good fruit. Good trees don't produce bad fruit. It's that same theory. These are people who have a track record that demonstrates that they are not who they say they are. So Jude has not so subtly reminded the church 
that they ignored Peter's good advice earlier, and now they find themselves fighting the very enemy they were warned about, only the fight's taking place on their home turf, inside the church, inside the city walls, so to speak. And the enemy looks like them, but they can be known by their fruit. That fruit is sin, done in the name of grace, and because of it, they're denying the master and corrupting the faith. So, Jude knows that there's a leak in this ship. It's taking on water. He's going to have to help them. So he's written urgently, asking him to plug those holes, wake up to the threat. And perhaps Jude is concerned these readers are going to respond to him by saying, well, all right, so they're here. Let's try to work with them. Let's try to fix their theology. Let's try to teach them how to teach properly, or let's at least try to rehabilitate their thinking in some way. I mean, shouldn't the church be more compassionate than that? To the one in the church who we find is not the believer and not able to do what's right, not cognizant of what's true, shouldn't we take on a compassionate perspective toward these people? They might be seekers. Shouldn't we uh, make the church become seeker-friendly to support their needs? Well, look at what Jude says. Jude reminds the church how the Lord historically deals with such people. Jude 5, he says, Now, I desire to remind you, though you know all things, once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels, who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, He is kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. In these verses, you get his fourth triad, which is going to shift our focus a little, as every triad does. Collectively, what he just gave the church were three lessons from their history concerning what they should expect from God's point of view concerning their situation. How does God see their situation? And, and of course, specifically, how does God see those who have come into the church? How does he see those false teachers? And the history he's thinking of, of course, is Jewish history, because this is a Jewish church, by and large, and everybody in the Jewish camp would have understood the history of the Jewish people so well. So he's using examples that they know very well, And he prefaces them, though, by saying, I want to remind you of something and quickly adds something you already know. You already have all of this. Does the phrase once for all ring bells for you from what we did last week? Because he says that in that in those phrases, right? I want to remind you, though, you know, all things once for all. Where did that phrase pop up last time? It was in reference to the faith handed down once for all. Right. This is a way, again, of referencing scripture. It's a polite rebuke. It's saying, I want to remind you something, but you know, you already have all of this in the scriptures. Of course, the implication is you should know all of this, but you haven't, which is why I now need to remind you of what you should have already known. All three of these examples are found in Jewish scripture. They're all found in books, either Genesis or Exodus. And that means every God-fearing Jew, before they became even a believer in Jesus Christ, would have had these things top of mind, would have understood them. More importantly, though, they should have learned lessons from them. It's not enough to simply know the history. It's supposed to know what the history means. And he's telling them what it means. In the first example, Jude references the wandering of Israel in the desert after leaving Egypt. Israel departed Egypt as a nation, but the nation consisted of two million individuals or so, we think, somewhere in that range. God didn't call that nation because all two million of them were God-fearing believers. That's a misunderstanding that I see coming up over and over again. I'm not sure quite where it started. Why do we assume that because he called a nation of people that that automatically means every single last human being in that nation were believers? 
If that were true, it would be like the only time in Israel's history that that's ever been true, right? The scriptures testify to the fact that Israel has never been more than a remnant. The true Israel, the faithful one, the believing one, is called a remnant from front to back in the scriptures. Sometimes that remnant is quite small. Sometimes it's most of the nation, perhaps. But we should never confuse what God does with the nation with what he may be doing for any given individual in the nation. So the nation of Israel is the nation of Israel, regardless of how many of them in any given moment are true believers and who are not. And so the lessons from that example is that as Israel left Egypt and received the law and prepared to enter into the promised land for the first time, along that story, along that narrative, they did things that revealed their true hearts. Some showed one kind of heart, some showed another kind of heart. Time and time again, though, many in the camp of Israel chose to satisfy their flesh in contrast to God's instructions. And they ended up testing him ten times before they got to the book of Numbers. And by the time they got there, that tenth was the last, and they're grumbling for lack of water and lack of food and no meat, and then they even worshipped an idol here and there along the way. Scripture says they did these things specifically because they lacked faith. The writer of Hebrews most classically says this, Hebrews 3, 16 through 19, he says, For who provoked him when they had heard, indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who had sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. So what Jude is using this example for is to remind this church, and therefore us, That even though God's nation left Egypt together, they were not all equally God's people. Not spiritually. Among those in the camp of Israel were some unbelieving men and women who took part in everything that happened but lacked a true heart. They were like the false teachers of Jude's day. They didn't get credit for just showing up. They were condemned for a lack of faith. And God knew who they were. As a result of their unbelief, it says God eventually destroyed them. And in fact, an entire generation, by and large... Almost all of them passed away in the desert. Only a remnant entered the promised land. The rest were destroyed. So what lesson do you learn from them? Well, God knows who are truly his and those that are not his who are hiding in the camp. And those who are not his will perish. And as Peter taught in 2 Peter 2.9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. So the first thing he wants them to remember is God knows the difference between you and them. And he's going to hold them accountable. You don't want a part of that. In the second example, Jude mentions sinning angels. He says angels did not keep their proper abode. Simply put, they didn't stay where they belong. They didn't stay put where they belong. They went somewhere they were forbidden to go. And therefore they sinned. Which means we don't want to call them angels, truly. We want to call them demons. That's what we mean when we say demon, a fallen angel. He names them and then he doesn't say what they did. He just jumps straight to their consequences. He says they're currently kept bound in darkness, awaiting that future day of judgment. Notice he calls it the great day. That's the day when all sin is finally judged. All sin is removed forever. Truly a great day. This is a group of angels who we know did something wrong. They didn't say where they're supposed to. And they're in this very unique place right now, bound in total darkness somewhere and waiting then for this day of judgment. What did they do? We really get a better sense from looking at Peter's letter. Again, 2 Peter talks about the same thing. This is another one of those references Jude is making from 2 Peter. 2 Peter 2, we learn this. We find out that these angels and their behaviors were associated with the time of Noah, 
and with the events at the beginning of the flood in chapter six of Genesis. We read this chapter six, verse one. Now, it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. We don't have time for a full exposition of these verses. If you really want that, there's a Genesis study I can recommend online. But for now, let me summarize what that's saying. When you look carefully at the Hebrew words that underlie some of the descriptions in those two verses, you come to understand that Satan seeking to pollute the seed of mankind as a way of stopping the plan of God to bring the Messiah sends demons to impregnate women. Now, we obviously don't know how spirit and flesh work in that way, how the spirit realm and mankind could interact in such a way that this was possible, except that we know it was possible because it happened. Similar to the way angels appeared to Abraham elsewhere in the book of Genesis and eat with him at a tent. And he has no understanding, at least initially, that they're nothing more than just regular men. Somehow the angelic realm apparently has the capacity to take on the appearance of flesh and interact with men in a physical way. And we're not we're none the wiser for it. Apparently that's possible. After the demons made this plan and began to execute it to some degree, God responds by bringing the flood. In fact, it was this event that caused him to say, I will not strive with flesh forever. I'm going to put an end to this in 120 years. And 120 years later, the flood came, wiping out all of the products of these unions, while the demons themselves, who are not flesh, were consigned to the abyss in this place of darkness. They were bound and are being held for the day of judgment. So what's the lesson you learn from this, from angels rebelling and all the rest? Well, consider what these angels knew before they rebelled. They knew the reality of God. They knew the truth as Jesus as his son, because he is the Alpha and the Omega. He was there in the beginning and all things were made through him. They understood the majesty of God. They saw things we have yet to see. They understood the power of God to accomplish all of his purposes. Yet they still chose to rebel against such glorious things. Futilely, it would seem. But yet they chose to. Clearly, they were not interested in the truth. Moreover, they are not candidates for rehabilitation. They are bound in darkness. They are removed from any further influence. Their only waiting is for judgment. Not for a second chance. So the lesson is that even an exposure to God's truth, to his power, to his glory, to his majesty, does not ensure that someone will come to know the truth. So any misplaced hope that by association we can rehabilitate these people is missing the point of what's happening in the spiritual realm. That they are enemies, they are counterfeits, and once once exposed, they must be removed. Now, down the road, should God's grace manifest in their lives triumph over their sin and bring them to their knees in repentance and in faith, we would welcome them as we would any other believer. That is always true. We don't wait for that process while they're teaching in our pulpits. You aren't depending on that outcome while you sit under their influence. They are due judgment and that judgment has been prepared for them as it has been for these angels. And then finally, the third example, Sodom and Gomorrah, a story that needs no further explanation. The chief sin of those cities was indulging in gross immorality, Jude says. In Greek, the term there for indulging in gross immorality, that term carries a sense of giving in to an urge or giving in to a desire. The men of that city, therefore, gave in to a wrong desire, and then as a result, they go after strange flesh, we're told. Then Jude says, the entire episode of Sodom and Gomorrah took place so that the world would have a vivid picture of what the Lord has planned for those who practice such things. 
The judgment of the cities was temporal. We know that. But in its form, it pictures something much greater. You know, fire and brimstone raining down from heaven and destroying every last shred of a city is not something you see every day. And as something so notable, it gives us a vivid example of what it is to suffer eternal judgment, though it is only a small example of it, not the fullness of it. So in that lesson, Jude is simply teaching that false teachers indulged in fleshly sinful desires, but there is an eternal judgment coming for that behavior. The hope in all of this, you can tell, is to separate the believer from these people, not just in the reality of who they are now in eternal terms, but in behavior, in affinity, in association. You know, if you knew lightning was going to strike me, you'd stand as far from me as you possibly can. It's that sense of distancing ourselves, not only from their teaching and their influence, but from wherever they are, given God's disdain for them and the way he's reserved judgment for them. We want no part of that. So let's sum up the three examples. The enemies of the faith might be hard to see in the way they appear, but God knows them. They are the ones who do not believe. They are the ones who reject God's authority. And so he will reject and destroy them. Point two, the enemies of the faith have been exposed to great and wonderful truths and wonders of the faith. Yet they are like the angels that willingly left their proper place. They despise the majesty of God's glory in Christ, and therefore they will experience eternal darkness. And the enemies of the faith, lastly, are motivated by an indulgence in their flesh. They seek to defile the flesh, but they will experience eternal fire. Do you notice the one common thing for each? The end result. The end result. Look what Jude says in verse 8. Verse 8, Yet in the same way these men, also dreaming, Defile the flesh, reject authority, and revile angelic majesties. They defile flesh by their false encouragement to sin. They reject authority in their denying of God's word and the apostles' teaching. And then he says they revile angelic majesties. The word for angelic majesties shouldn't be translated that way. I have a feeling the English translators did this just to maintain some parallelism and harmony with the earlier examples. But the Greek word is doxa, D-O-X-A. It's a simple word. It appears all over the Bible. It just means glory as in heavenly glory. In other words, they reject authority and revile glory, God's glory. They revile the majesty and glory of God, which they have seen in the work of the Spirit in the temple of God that is in the church. So just as demons want to corrupt the bodies of women and destroy the human race, now the false teachers are doing the same to the church. Anytime we are encouraged by someone to walk in sin in the name of Christ, we're experiencing this particular kind of deception. There's a lot of ways in which the enemy works. Here's the one he's concerned with. Anyone who would say to you that a walk in sin is somehow compatible with Scripture or with our faith. It's a deception of reviling majesty, of reviling glory. It's a call to rebel against God, to rebel in our flesh. That's why Hebrews says that God does not give help to fallen angels. The plan of redemption is limited to mankind. He is working a plan of glory for man. These false teachers, like the demons before them, revile that glory, and they're seeking to destroy it. There's a true jealousy evident in Scripture among the demonic realm for the fact that God is working with men in a redemptive plan that does not include them. And so they are working to destroy it best they can. So look out for these guys. Father, give us wisdom to know when we see things that are not according to your will. Let us... Spend the time required in Scripture so that we'd be prepared for the days when these men will come amongst us, and, or women for that matter, who might teach outside the counsel of your word. Help us to have the courage to speak up when we see them, to address those concerns with others in the church, 
not to fall guilt, uh, prey to that teaching ourselves. To always be mindful, Father, of the fact that the enemy is working, prowling, looking for an opportunity to devour us with false teaching. And the way we stand firm, Father, let us do it without an attitude of um, arrogance, self-satisfaction, or self-righteousness, without appearing to know everything, Father, without being puffed up in some respect. Let us always conduct ourselves, Father, with modesty and with humility, with a desire, Father, to show love in the process. And then let us guard the teaching all that, everywhere that we go. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.